time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life. Raise your hand if you're in junior high school. Raise your hand if you're in high school. Raise your hand if you're a lowerclassman. Upperclassman? So much pride. College age? Any adults in here? Not that college age is not an adult. But parents, I guess. All right, well, I'm Tyrell. I'm uh, the director of DLA out here. DLA's uh, 18 to 25-year-olds move here from all over the nation. And we just, uh, they move here for a year, for 11 months, and uh, really just sign up to be discipled and trained. And so uh, I really enjoy what I do. I enjoy working with the team here. Um, So thanks for coming to here, and uh, thanks for coming to Desperation. We're so glad that you guys are here. I'm just going to kind of uh, share with you guys what the Lord has put on my heart um, about the Father's heart for you and for me. And so obviously that's what I said in that little blur, but I think a lot of uh, what God has called me to do and who he's called me to be was to really just to see what he's doing uh, in the midst of a generation and to just talk about it and to say, you know, this is what I see God doing and this is uh, uh, what, what I think our response should be. And so let me just open us up in prayer and we'll dig in here, okay? God, we just thank you for your heart. We thank you for your will and your desire for each one of us. Lord, I just give you this time this morning. Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence into this room. I just pray that you would speak through me and share with us what it is that you desire to share. Share with us who you are and what you think about your people, God. Lord, we just bless you this morning. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. You guys find a seat? Come on in. If you can't find a seat, you can grab the floor up there or over here. That'll work. All right, so I see, uh, I really see a movement of the Holy Spirit happening. And I think that the Holy Spirit is doing something in this generation that's preparing us for what's to come. And the movement that I see is I really see that the Father is focused, very focused, on his people, on us, on his children. And so, I mean, we were created to be with God, to have fellowship with God, to worship God. And in his eyes, in his sight, and what he sees and what he thinks, and when he created all of us... He created us to be with him. And so if he created you and I to be with him, to, to have fellowship with him, what is that called? But the, the term that comes to my mind is family. So the father has a great and strong emphasis on family. And I know that we come from all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of different cultures. And we have, all, all of you have different parents. You have different siblings Um, Some of you have parents that are absent. Some of you have parents that are there. Some of you have siblings. Some of you don't have siblings. We all come from different family backgrounds. And so that's why I think a, a big part of what God is doing is he's trying to reveal the truth to us about what family's supposed to look like. Not any, no family is perfect. No family is, no family structure is perfect. No parents are perfect. None of that. So we come from different backgrounds and different cultures and different things and different places but there is a very real truth about what family should look like in God's, in God's eyes. And so God has a strong emphasis on family. And in fact, you see the emphasis just in the fact that uh, God uses the term father. 
right? So God uses the term father in explaining himself. Father is obviously talking about the family member. And then you see it also in the son, Jesus. The son, Jesus, God's son. So you have the father and the son using family terms. And then you see that uh, God has family and he has fellowship within himself. I mean, we all know that you have God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he has fellowship within himself. The Trinity is one. It's hard to understand. It's hard to grasp. But we have one God, but it's the Trinity. It's one and three and three and one. But, the, but God has fellowship within himself. And so it's this example and this idea that, that there's family within God himself. He has this strong focus on his people. He created you. He created me to be with him, to have fellowship with him, to talk with him to walk with him, to do life with him. And so there's this strong family sense when it comes to God's view of you and I. And I think that the movement that I see that's happening, the Holy Spirit is doing, is he's wanting to implement in you and I uh, what it means to be a son and a daughter of, of the Father. What it means to actually find our identity in God. And we, we find so, so much of our identity in so many other things. We find our identity in fashion. We find our identity even in American culture. We find our identity in our career. We find our identity in our spouse. We find our identity in, in our possessions. We find our identity in so many other things. We even find our identity in some really good things such as ministry or, you know, well, I've, I've ministered to this many people or I find my identity because I have this title or I find my identity because I've led these, these friends to Jesus Christ. The truth is, is that our identity should be as sons and as daughters, and that should be our identity all in all, all together. When we realize our identity and that we're heirs and that the inheritance that God has for you and for me, when we realize that identity, when we have a revelation of it, that we are sons and daughters, then we begin to live through that lens and we live into the fullness that God's called us to live into. And so it's a key factor for us to realize who you are in Jesus Christ. It doesn't so much matter what you do as far as, you know, if I fulfill exactly what I feel I should fulfill in this life. If I fulfill what I should fulfill in my high school years or I should fulfill in my college years or I'm going to fulfill in the future. Too often we look to the future and we go, well, this is who I'm going to be. And we think of what we're doing and that's defining who we're going to be. But that's not how it, how it should be. We don't define ourselves who we are by what we do, whether now or in the future. Who you are, if you've received Jesus as your Savior. If you've come to the Lord and said, I confess that I cannot save myself, that I need a Savior, and you repented of your ways, and you said, I need you as my Savior. I need you to save me from myself. Then you're a son and you're a daughter. That's your identity. That's who you are. So what does that mean? Of course, we're going to dig into this here. One of the main reasons why I, see, why I know that this is an emphasis in this time. You know, of course, of course uh, the Lord wants us to realize that we're sons and daughters throughout all of history. But I see such a strong emphasis specifically on this generation. And when I say generation, I speak of, you know, all the humans that are living on the earth right now. Uh, one of the reasons why I think it's such a strong emphasis right now is because I see such, such an uh, aggression from the adversary in this is you see so many broken families. I mean, in the last 50 years, over 50 years ago, you don't, you don't see the, the mass 
amount of families being broken up. And so we see families broken up in the church and without. If you're not, you know, don't be ashamed or anything, but raise your hand if you come from a broken family. Okay, put your hands up. So do I. So we see these broken families and these family systems, and I think there's a real strong target against our family structures, and not just that, but specifically against our fathers. We see a really, there's, there's an anointing on every father, there's an anointing on every dad to be the representation of God the Father, to be the example of God the Father. And so when we are children growing up in our homes, then we look to our dad and we see, we just subconsciously see and relate our dad, our father, our earthly father with the heavenly father. And so we see so much that the fathers are absent or the fathers are distracted or the fathers are not, are just altogether disengaged in the home or the fathers are abusive. And we see these skewed things. Of course, our earthly fathers are not going to be perfect, but there's an anointing on them. There's a calling. There's a grace given to every father to be a representation of the father and to point the children to the father. And so we see such a, such a skewed vision and I, and I even relate it to, like I said, I lead DLA. And just take, for instance, typically our guy-to-girl ratio is one guy for every three girls. Something's messed up, don't you think? Now, it's not that I'm not thankful for the girls. I'm very thankful for the girls. They're stepping it up. They're, they're seeking after God. They're devoting their life. I mean, this is a sacrifice that these students do. These interns come and they sign up, for, they sign up and they give a year of their life away to come and seek after God. And so we have plenty of women coming to seek after God. But where are the men? Where are the guys? We're, we're skewed in our vision of things. We're skewed in our, in our pursuits. The desperate cry of this generation isn't necessarily for more things or possessions or money or careers or those things. The cry of this generation is that they would be fathered. That they would have a father. So we need to speak about kind of our perspective, the way that we see stuff. In the, in, in the Bible, there's a, the story about Jesus and feeding the 5,000. You're all familiar with that story. And the way, the way that the story goes is the disciples were out ministering, and, and the Lord had anointed them to go out and minister. And they had come back, and they're obviously very tired. And, and Jesus is ministering to, I guess, 5,000 people. And so Jesus is ministering to all of these people. And the disciples are, t- are tired. They're in a remote place, um, a place where there's no way to get food and stuff like that. And the disciples come to Jesus and they go, Jesus, you've got to send these people away. It's late in the day. They've got to go get some food. And Jesus looks at them and he says something that's, that's very interesting to me. And he says, you give them something to eat. And so when I was reading through the scriptures and I'm like, you know, years ago and, and I came across it, I was just like, what? You know, like. They're like, you need to dismiss these people so they can go get something, something to eat. And Jesus goes, you give them something to eat. And so I was like, that's just kind of a weird thing. It's just a weird phrase. I'm just, I was kind of just astonished by it. And so I just started to study that section and just started to dig into it and see what exactly Jesus was trying to do here. And so we see that the disciples then turn to each other and they're like, what is he talking about? You know, there's 5,000 people here. All we have, as the story goes, is a, is a loaf of bread and a couple fish from this kid. You know, what is he talking about? It would take a, a month of wages in order to feed all of these people one time. They automatically go to the thought process of, 
What would it take in this world in order for me to feed all of these people? And so in studying this passage of scripture, and Jesus goes on, the parable goes on, and Jesus, you know, breaks the bread and, and multiplies the food, and all the people get, get fed. Wow. <laughs> There's a concert going on over there. It's, <laughs> would you mind shutting that for me? Thanks. Um, sounds like, okay, so, uh, so as the story goes, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And what I, what I found in that, in that principle, and I see in, in it's, the stories told in a couple of the different gospels, is I see that Jesus just anointed his disciples to go out and to heal the sick and raise the dead and perform all kinds of miracles, preach the gospel, all of these things he just anointed them to do. And they came back and they actively told Jesus about what they had done. And they come back and then there's this crowd of 5,000. And Jesus is like, you know, yeah, they need food. You give them something to eat. And it was this test. It was kind of this idea of like Jesus was saying to his disciples, did you get it yet? They just went out and they just raised the dead. They just went out and they just uh, preached the gospel with boldness. They just went out and saw people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They just went out and saw miracle after miracle. In fact, performed miracle after miracle in the name of Jesus. And then they come to these 5,000 and Jesus goes, you give them something to eat to see if, if their perspective has changed at all. And the very first thing that they go to is they go, well, we'd have to work for the money in order to buy food in order for these people to be fed. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. Change your perspective. Understand that the kingdom has no limits. That my kingdom has no limits. Understand that if the gospel needs to be ministered, then, then I can do anything in order to minister. That these, these people can be fed by a miracle by my father. And so we see this perspective, this change, this shift. And so we live in this physical realm. We live in the world where we can see our arms, we can see our hands, we can see each other, we can see this building, and this is the physical world that we live in. But how many of you know that the spiritual world is more real than the physical world that we see? That in the spiritual realm, the Bible says that we should focus not on what is seen, because what is seen is temporal. But we should focus on what is unseen, because what is unseen is eternal. The things that happen in the spiritual realm are, are what causes things to happen in the physical realm. It's not that I do something in the physical realm and that affects the spiritual realm. Whatever's going on in the spiritual realm, whatever's going on in my soul and in my heart, whatever's going on battles in the spiritual realm, that's what causes a manifestation in the physical realm. And so Jesus is calling us to have a different perspective, to see things differently. So you see how it relates. With family, we see our family system, and that's great, and that's good. And even those of you that have, have had a great family system, we see that. But there's a perspective and there's a truth about God the Father and you as his son or his daughter and how family looks and how we view God and how God views us. So A.W. Tozer said, your view of God is the most important thing about you. Your view of God is the most important thing about you. Do you believe that? The way that you view God. So what does that mean? I mean, that means how you see God. How do you see God? Not, not, not so much physically. Well, I haven't seen God with my physical eyes. But how do you view God? How do you think about God? Do you think that God is a taskmaster that is ready to crush you as soon as you do something wrong? 
You think that God is just kind of chilling in heaven and, you know, those shirts from back in the day, they're like, Jesus is my homeboy. Do you think that Jesus is your homeboy and he's just chillaxing? And he's just like, you know, I'm just going to hang out here while you guys do life. Don't you think that the way that you view God affects what you do and who you are and what you believe and what you think? It affects everything. The way that you view God, if you think that there is no God, it's going to affect the way that you live. If you think there is a God, it's going to affect the way you live. If you think there's a God that that is looking down on us and just waiting for us to do something wrong to crush us, it's going to affect how you live. It's going to affect what you say. It's going to affect even your demeanor and your emotions. It's going to affect everything. How you view God is the most important thing about you. And it's not just how we view God, but also how we view that God views us. How do you see, how do you see God? How do you, how do you think that God feels in his heart towards you and towards me? We've got to gain the truth to that matter. There's all kinds of, of lies in the world about how God views you and me. There's, there's a million lies on how God views you and me, but there's one truth. There's one truth. Do you think it's important that we gain the perspective, the true perspective of how God sees us? There's one truth about how God sees you. There's one truth about who you are in his sight. And that truth of revealing, of understanding that you are a son or a daughter, that that the inheritance is yours, that you're an heir as a son or daughter. The revelation, the understanding that how much God loves you, how much God desires you will change your whole life. And it's not something, that, let me tell you, I'm going to go into some of this detail, but it's not something I'm going to preach and you're going you're gonna to be like, I got it. It's not something that you're going to be like, yeah, dude, that's great. God loves me. It's going to take you going to the Lord and being like, God, I desire to know the truth of what you think about me. God, I want to know what you think about me. I want to know who you are. I want to know what's in your heart. I want to know what you feel towards me. I want to know what you think about situations and circumstances. I want to know what you're saying to a generation. I want to know what you're doing in my midst. I want to know who you are, God. It's going to take pursuit of God. No no sermon has ever changed anyone. It's a response to what God is doing in our midst. It's a response to a revelation that God is revealing to you. Everything within the kingdom of God takes a response. If there is no response, there is no change. We're not changed by a worship song or by a sermon. So any of these truths that are revealed to you today is going to take you being like, God, I want to know the truth. I want to know the truth about the way that you see me. And if you begin to grasp the truth about who you are in Christ and finding your identity in the Lord, you'll live into who he's called you to be. You'll be miles ahead of most people. Because it's not found, most of us find our identity in, in uh, especially those of us, if you, if you were religious and or godly and or uh, a God seeker, however you want to explain yourself, most of us find our identity in what we're going to do for God. Right? Who am I called to be? What, what am I called to do? Am I called to be a missionary? Or am I called to be a pastor? Or am I called to the business world? Those are the decisions that we're always weighing out. Those are the decisions that we're always so burdened and weighed down with. Let me tell you, when you understand who you are, it doesn't so much matter. 
I was a youth pastor, now I'm the DLA director. What I'm going to do next? I don't know. Am I going to serve God? Yeah. Could it be in the business world? Sure. Could it be in the missions field? Yeah. Could it be discipling junior high students? Sure. Does it change who I am? No. Does it change what I think about God? No. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to love him. I know I'm, I'm beginning to realize who I am in Jesus. The inheritance is mine. Nothing's going to take it away. Okay, let's, let's dig in. Okay. I want, to, I want to hit on this idea of, you've heard the term Abba, right? Are you all with me? Are you bored? Okay, good. Some of you said you were bored, but that's okay. No, I'm just kidding. There's three, three spots in the scripture where the, where the term Abba is listed. And two of those are in direct context of sonship. When I say sonship or I talk about being a son, girls just relate it to being the daughter and daughtership, okay? Uh, so there's three, the two direct contexts of, of, of where it says Abba is in direct, direct context of sonship. And the other one is Jesus the son crying out to his father in the garden right before he's going to the cross. And so most of you are familiar with Romans 8.15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading you to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So this word Abba, I want to read to you this little passage from a commentary that I found. The word Abba is the Aramaic word for father. We all knew that. It is the diminutive form used by small children in addressing their fathers. It is appropriate to see its similarity to the English word daddy. Used by Christ... This familiar form indicates intimacy and trust as opposed to the formalism of legalism. Okay, so it's important that we understand that. The term Abba, when we're talking to our father, Abba, it denotes, it indicates intimacy and trust. It indicates intimacy and trust as opposed to a formal, formalism of legalism. So we see when it's talking about Abba and it's talking about sonship, we see the direct opposites there. When we're seeing, if you know that you're a son, or if you don't know that you're a son, then we're talking about the, the difference between intimacy and trust and legalism. We're talking about the difference of relationship and living by the law. And so we see throughout the scriptures, specifically the New Testament, that over and over and over again, if you, if you read it with, with the view of understanding uh, in, in context, with a macro view over and over and over again, we see the, the talk about the law versus grace. We see Paul, we, see, we, we, we read Peter, we read John, and over and over again, they're like, you're no longer under the law, you're under grace, but when you're under grace and you're son of God, that will produce righteousness. Just over and over and over again, because it's real, real confusing and it's real involved, and these people lived under the law for so long. They lived under the law, and then Jesus came, and then all of a sudden these guys are saying, no, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. All you have to do is hear the message and believe in your heart, and you will be saved. There's nothing you can do to add to your salvation. And so over and over again throughout the New Testament, we see this, this context and this idea. And so these couple areas where it's talking about Abba Father and it's talking about sonship, or in Romans chapter 7 and 8. Uh, go ahead and turn there if you have your Bible. 
Okay, are you there? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts in the letters to the Romans. Who knows that song? Okay. Romans chapter 7 and 8. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Paul here is talking about the conflict of two natures. I'm going to read through this really quickly, okay? We're going to use quite a bit of scripture here in the next bit. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what am I doing? I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I, am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Okay, so stop right there. So he's talking about a battle between his flesh and his spirit. And so how many of us, probably 99% of us in this room, desire to live by the spirit? We desire to live righteously. We desire to do what is right. We desire to, to live according to God's commands. We desire to do what he's called us to do. That's our spirit, our spirit within us is desiring to live into who he's called us to be. We, un, we even have an understanding that, that the things that God teaches us, the things that God shows us, the, the way that God has called us to live is the best way. We understand he has our best interests in mind. We have all these desires within us, but yet there's still a battle going on. We don't totally overcome the battle with the flesh. We still live in a fallen world. We still live in, in, with flesh and bones. There's a battle going on. So Paul is saying there's a very real battle. The good that I want to do, I do not do. And the evil I don't want to do, I do. How many of you have ever felt that way before? I have. Okay, so so there's this battle. So he's recognizing this battle. Verse 24, and he goes, wretched man that I am. Wretched men that we all are. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he goes, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then the one, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. So he says there's this battle and, he's, and he says, thanks be to God. Thank you. He says, thank you that there's Jesus Christ. Thank you that he's the propitiation for our sins. He's the appeasement for our sins. He's the, he's the sacrifice in place of us for our sins. And so then you have the very, the very next verse. You guys know all these chapters and verses were put in by us, but this was written as a whole letter. So chapter 8, verse 1 is continuing on with what we're talking about. And you all know this, this verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? In my Bible here, this, this little passage is labeled deliverance from bondage. It's talking about the deliverance from the bondage of sin that's caused by the law. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're sensing condemnation, there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction is of the Holy Spirit and always produces hope for change and is never condemning and harsh and saying that 
you're, you're done with. There's no hope. Condemnation is saying you're done with. There's no hope. There's no hope for the future. It's very accusatory. It's very condemning. It's very much like there's, there's, you, there's no hope for you. You're done with. You've, you've done too much. You've gone too far. That's condemnation. Condemnation is the bondage of sin. We put, we put condemnation on ourselves. The enemy puts condemnation on us. When you're living into condemnation, then you're, you're, you're feeling the weight of the law. You're feeling this idea that I haven't abided. I haven't done enough in order to be accepted, in order to be saved, in order to be received. The bondage of sin is caused by the law. Now, okay, so the law, you understand the, the new covenant and the old covenant, right? The old covenant was before Jesus came. And that's when they had the law. And that's like the written law, like the Ten Commandments. Do not murder, do not steal. They had the written law, as well as a bunch of other stuff. And so you have it written down. This is how you should live. This is what you should do. This is what you should not do. That's the written law. Jesus came, and he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus came, but now we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. Now we're no longer under law. It's not a license to say, oh, I don't have to obey the law because now I'm under grace. I can do whatever I want to do. But the condemnation that you're receiving is a condemnation that comes upon you because you are upset with the way that you're doing things or how you're acting and you think somehow that makes God love you less. You think somehow God loves you less, you're less saved, and you can't do it on your own. There's no hope for the future. You have all this condemnation on you, but it's all rooted in this idea that you are saved by works. You're saved by living by the law, which we're not. It's human nature to want to be able to just do something in order to produce a result. We always want to just do something in order to produce a result. So we, you know, I know for me, for sure, if I could just have a list, you know, I know there's lots of things in my life where I'm like, man, I really want to get to this point in my walk with God, or I really want to get to this point in my marriage, or I really want to want to do this better or that better. If someone could just tell me the formula, I would totally do it. I would, I would sacrifice so many things to just to, to do the formula. That's human nature. And so we see the, the same battle that they were struggling with in Bible times when Paul was writing these letters of where people are battling against the flesh and they're saying, you know, I want to, to, to be saved and they want to do something in order to be saved. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. It's not the things that you do that save you. You're saved from hearing the message and believing in your heart. And when you are saved, when you realize that you're a son and you're a daughter, the, the response is love for God. The response is living for God. The response is righteousness. The response is holiness. You live into holiness like you never did before. We don't live by the Spirit, by our willpower. We don't live by the Spirit, by being really, really disciplined. We live by the Spirit, by understanding who you are. You will live by the Spirit when you gain a revelation that you have received Christ... As your Lord and Savior, the inheritance is yours. You're an heir. The inheritance is yours. No one's taking it away. You're a son. You're a daughter. God has called you. So we see even in Galatians 3.10, and he says, 
All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Now, I don't want us to get the wrong picture that I'm talking about. Okay, so let's just scratch the law. Let's just scratch our actions. Let's just scratch what we do with our lives because we're all under grace and we're all saved by grace. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying grace is a license to sin. No way. Grace is the empowerment to not sin. When we're under grace and we understand who we are in Christ, you live into righteousness. You live into holiness. You live into who God has called you to be. Turn with me to Galatians. We're almost done here. When I say that, I mean like 10 minutes, okay? Okay, before we go to Galatians, I forgot one thing in Romans, but you don't have to turn there. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, my brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You see this idea of slavery leading to fear again. again. And when you feel condemned and you feel like a slave and you feel afraid, all of those things are indications that you're, try, you're living under the curse of the law. If you're living under the curse of the law, I want you to hear clearly that it's, it's this, it's, we could say a million times over that I understand I'm saved by grace through faith. But until there's some revelation in your heart, until there's some pursuit of God and you say, Lord, help me realize that I'm a son or a daughter. Help me realize that I don't earn anything here. You, you, you'll, you'll live as if you're a slave to the law. You see, and it produces depression. It produces uh, anger. It produces uh, lack of joy. It produces lack of happiness and enjoyment of life. When you're feeling condemned, you feel like a slave and you feel afraid. Why do you feel afraid? Because you're afraid if you do something wrong that you're not going to be loved by God, that you're not going to be received by God. Why are you afraid? Because you're like, well, if I'm not being like this guy, then I'm afraid that I won't be who God's called me to be. No guy and no girl are any more of a son or a daughter than you are. We're all sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. So he's given us the spirit of sonship by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Remember, that's intimacy and trust as opposed to legalism. Intimacy and trust. That you trust the Lord Jesus, that he will do what he said he would do. Galatians 3 and 4, we see over and over. And I just wanted to list off, like, you know, through the New Testament, like I mentioned before, that over and over there's the conversation between law and grace. And you see, like, faith, they're talking about faith brings righteousness. The intent of the law. It's talking about the intentions of the law. Having sonship in Christ. Living by faith. Are you slave or are you free? The Christian walk. Be imitators of God. Be like Christ. All of these exhortations, all of these encouragements in the scriptures 
are encouraging us to understand that we're sons and daughters in Christ. And through that revelation is living into righteousness. Is you will walk by faith. You will live more. You become more like Christ. You will be imitators of God. And you live into the righteousness. You live into the holiness by the revelation that you're a son or a daughter. That you're not earning anything by law. I want, the thing I want us to see in Galatians here. I want to read Galatians 3, 1. And there's this, there's this argument here that, they're, that the Jews were circumcised and they, and they were saying to the Gentiles, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. And so it's the same exact application, I think, to our day as unless you um, go to church every week, you can't be saved. Unless you live up to this level of holiness, you can't be saved. Unless you're doing this or doing that, you can't be saved. It's the same idea. Do you you see what I'm saying? So the Jews are saying, if you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. Paul is like, no, that's totally wrong. That's not right. It's not because of something we do or some religious act or anything like that. We're saved because we heard the message. And so that's the battle. And we have the direct application to our day, even within church world, where we start to feel condemnation when we aren't spending time with God every day. How many of you feel less loved by God or like you're not going to make it because you haven't spent time with God every day? We put on these, we put on these, uh, these ideas that we're bound to these customs, even within the church world. Now, obviously, is it bad to spend time with God every day? No, that's the first element of our vow, passion. Spend time with God every day. We shoot for something way high so that we won't not shoot for anything and not even try to attain to anything. But spending time with God every day, going to church, doing all of these custom things, we bind ourselves to these customs and we begin to think, well, if I don't do these things, then somehow I feel condemned. Somehow I feel afraid. Somehow I don't feel loved and the thing that breaks through all of those things is understanding that you're a son or a daughter is that it's not how much time you spend with god every single day it's not how much you go to church every single week it's not that you've lived your high school years perfectly that makes you a son or a daughter you're a son or daughter because you heard the message and you believe that jesus christ is the son of god and he's the savior of your soul that's what sets you free that's what makes you free And that revelation over and over and over again is what causes us to live in righteousness. It's what causes the response. We love him because he first loved us. Understanding that God loves us, is that revelation produces the result of us loving him. Does that make sense? Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's asking a rhetorical question saying you didn't receive the spirit. You didn't receive the spirit of sonship. You didn't, you didn't become children of God by the works of the law, by doing something. You, you became saved by hearing the message and believing. Hearing with faith. Right there in verse 2. Hearing with faith. Or are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So they, they believe the message. 
and they were saved, and then these other guys come in and they go, no, you must be, you must be circumcised. And so Paul's rebuttaling that and saying, no, it's not what you do. You already are sons and daughters. You already are sons and daughters of God. Okay, verse, nine, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19. Oh, no, let's, let's skip that stuff. Chapter 4. Now I say, as long as the heir is the child. Now, li- listen, this is the promise. I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. Okay, just stop right there. So we have, we have the, the house structure in Bible times, and the sons were the heirs of everything that the father owned. So the, the father owned 100 sheep and 50 goats. The son is the heir. He will get those 100 sheep and those 50 goats when the father passes. Does that make sense? And so this passage of Scripture is saying, the child is an heir, but he doesn't differ from a slave. So they had slaves in the household. Slaves were just employees. They worked for the father. And so the inheritance wasn't theirs at all. So the child isn't different from the slave as a child because they're eight years old. They can't, they can't inherit anything. They can't inherit anything until they're of age and the father passes away and then everything is theirs. Does that make sense? Okay. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. So he owns everything. The inheritance is his, but he hasn't gotten it yet. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. And that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if, it's, and if a son, an heir through God. You understand that we, have, we grow in our maturity in Christ. As children, we're immature. And, and Christ sympathizes with our weaknesses. But you grow, but no matter where you're at... If you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the inheritance is yours. You're an heir of God. The inheritance is yours, just like this kid. There's, there's a few scriptures that I just want to close with. In Hebrews 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. Second one's in Romans 2. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Hebrews 2. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. All of these passages of Scripture are revealing the heart of God, are revealing God that we have a high priest that sympathizes with our weaknesses, that we have... It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not fear. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And that that Jesus has been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Would you stand up with me? I'll pray and close here. You guys know when Moses, Moses talked with the Lord face to face, and this passage of scripture, I think, has been the most revealing to me about, about the Lord and about what he's doing in our midst. And 
Moses is up on the mountain and talking with the Lord. And he says, I pray. Moses says to the Lord, you know, if you've, found, if you've found favor with me, then go with me. Let your presence go with me. And then, and then Moses says in Exodus 33, I pray that you would show me your glory. And the Lord says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And so I think if, G, if God is going to pass in front of Moses and proclaim who he is to Moses, that it's noteworthy for us to look at. And so when God passes in front of Moses, he's, this is what the scriptures say. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. So the Lord is proclaiming this about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. When I read that, it's like, it's over and over. God is loving kindness and he's compassionate and he's slow to anger. And then all of a sudden, right at the end, he says, but, but, but not letting the wicked go unpunished and visiting the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. But just previously, we see why, why he says that is because the emphasis isn't on that he visits the iniquities to the third and fourth generations. The emphasis is that he blesses those that, that obey him to thousands of generations. And he's saying, look, I bless those to thousands of generations, but I visit the iniquities to those of the third and fourth generations. Do you see how his heart is saying, I, my heart is to bless you. My heart is to pour out loving kindness. My heart is to pour out grace and compassion and kindness on you. My heart is that you would be drawn to me by my kindness and my compassion and my mercy. I bless those that have obeyed me to the thousands of generations, but I, cur- I visit the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. Do you see the, di- the difference in the emphasis that God is desiring that we realize the kindness of his heart? That we realize that he receives us. That we realize that he loves us more than anything. That we can find security. That we can find an embrace in God. And when we find the embrace, when we find the security, when we find the idea that we are sons, that we are daughters in Christ, then we live into all the things that he's called us to live into. Then we live not with fear, not as slaves, we don't, do, we don't marry a person because we're insecure about, about our identity. We don't work a certain job because we're insecure about who we are. We don't say certain things because we're insecure about that. But we grow in the understanding that we are sons and daughters in Christ. Okay, let me pray. God, I just thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for these students. Lord, I just pray that you would come and reveal to each one of us, God, the revelation of being sons and daughters in your kingdom. God, I pray that you would bless these students for their efforts. I pray that you'd bless them for being here, Lord. I just pray that you'd shake their world, that you'd shake their heart, God, that they would come to a deeper knowledge of you. God, we just bless you today. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. And over time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life.